UpToDate wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. So my wife was asking me over the weekend why I was laughing so much as I read the latest book from Calvin Trillin. The answer could be as simple as, well, it is Calvin Trillin, the Kansas City-born journalist, author, and foodie who's entertained us for decades. More specifically, the answer could be the lead, or the first paragraph, of a story that appeared in The Advocate of Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 2019. Hang with me here, folks. I'm going to read you this one dazzling sentence that caught Calvin's attention. A veterinarian prescribed antibiotics Monday for a camel that lives behind an Iberville Parish truck stop after a Florida woman told law officers that she bit the 600-pound animal's genitalia after it sat on her when she and her husband entered its enclosure to retrieve their deaf dog. Calvin Trillin, a longtime writer for The New Yorker, speaks at 7 tomorrow night at Unity Temple on the Plaza in another Rainy Day Books event about his new collection of essays about journalism titled The Lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. More on that book in just a minute. Calvin Trillin, welcome back to Up to Date. Always an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Now, why in the world would that lead about the camel attract your attention? <laughs> well, a friend of mine from New Iberia, Louisiana, sent it to me, and uh, it attracted my attention because I couldn't read it without laughing, particularly when I got to the deaf dog. That just seemed to me the final problem there. I uh, was also interested in the fact that it was only one sentence, <laughs> and uh, it was I compared it sort of to a express train that goes by all the local stops without stopping. It just kept going. So uh, I thought it was a, an interesting lead. Well, Mr. James Edmonds this is the friend you just referred to, and he understands that you collect leads. You can't help yourself, can you? No, I, I do sort of collect leads. I, I particularly like uh, the short leads that often mystery uh, reporter, uh, crime reporters often use, sometimes toward the end of a paragraph and sometimes right at the beginning. Uh, for instance, uh, there, there's a story in the beginning of this of this book about um, when James Thurber was a young reporter, and his editor said that the uh, lead that he turned in was too wordy. He rewrote it and turned it in, and, and the lead paragraph then in its entirety was dead. <laughs> then he goes on in the next paragraph to talk about who got shot where. How big is this collection of leads that you've amassed over the decades, Calvin? I gather you keep them in a file somewhere? No, I just keep them in my head to a great extent. Uh -huh. I, also, I also like the uh, leads that you often see in New York Times obituaries where they manage to stuff the entire entirety of somebody's life between commas. And um, I, I admire those leads. And also there's something called the Miller Chop, which is um, named after Gene Miller, a marvelous reporter for the Miami Herald. And uh, he used to like to write a few fairly lengthy, complicated sentences, and then end with a two-word or three-word sentence. Huh. And that became known as the Miller Chop. 
it was said in the newsroom that Miller sometimes wrote as if he was being paid by the period. <laughs> you know, as someone who struggled with leads for more than 40 years, I know the lead can be a real battle. My first newspaper had a rule that said the lead couldn't be more than 25 words no matter what. And we were graded on that at evaluation time. And as a result of that, like you, I've come to appreciate shorter leads. But if that was the rule, the camel lead I just read wouldn't cut it. That would have been a shame if that yeah. was lost in history. <laughs> you know, it's not lost on me that we're having this conversation and you're out with this new book titled The Lead at a time when American journalism is really struggling, especially when it comes to local news. What do you make of it? Well, I think, I think it's uh, a tragedy because... Uh, Many places now that no longer have any local news, papers have folded, or, or even in big cities, some of them have gotten so that there say, uh, many fewer people covering, well, for instance, City Hall. So there, there's no opportunity to cut somebody loose for a, a long period of reporting for a, a story that might take more than just the routine coverage. Right. So, uh, I'm not sure that we know exactly how this is all going to come together at the end, but right now it's it's not a happy scene. Well, you spent your career in this business. Do you have a solution? Is there something that makes sense to you? No, not really. I I I uh, I, I don't have a solution because I think that a lot of the solution is um, going to depend on technology, which way that goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am. Uh, the last person in the world to know anything about technology. I've been thinking of writing a piece about a superhero called called uh, Super Klutz. And th that, that is me when it comes to computers. <laughs> you know, you've done a lot of different jobs over the years in professional writing. You wrote for The New Yorker for many years. You wrote for Time and The Nation. You've written lots of books, many on food. But you also, back in the day, covered the civil rights movement, and you focused on writing about the individuals involved in that movement. In fact, there's a photograph on the back jacket of the lead of you with former Congressman John Lewis back in the day. What drew you to that assignment as, as much as it did? Well, it was, it was luck, really. I was uh, looking for a job at time, and uh, they decided to send me to the Atlanta Bureau in fact, the person who hired me said I was the first person he interviewed who actually wanted to go to the Atlanta Bureau. But uh, the, at that point, that was in the early 60s. I, I thought that uh, that was the sort of story that would involve regular people, normal people, not politicians or movie stars. Uh, and it turned out that I was just lucky to be there on a busy year. There was the integration of the University of Georgia. Right and uh, the integration of the New Orleans schools and the Atlanta schools uh, and the Freedom Ride. There were years when not much happened from a, a reporter's point of view uh, because Washington wasn't really pushing very much. I happened to be there in a, in a year when it was exciting to cover. Well, in fact, you wound up writing a book on the integration of the University of Georgia what do you make of the progress this country has made on civil rights in the years since? Well, there are, there are good things and bad things. Uh, in, in some ways, 
we haven't made much progress at all in some ways. For, for instance, I think when, when uh, Barack Obama was, was uh, elected, people said it was remarkable we had a black president. I must say, when I was reporting in the South, particularly Mississippi, I would have settled for a black cop. Um, hmm. But so I think it's sort of three steps forward and two steps back. It's it's been slow. I do think that that we're making progress compared to what it used to be. Also, I think finally it's seen as a national problem and not a southern problem. It used to be that seg segregation. Uh, was seen as a uh, unfortunate but immutable uh, habit of uh, people who lived in certain states, and we now know that's no longer true. It's, so it's it's a national problem, and it's a personal problem. I think there's a black comedian, Carmichael, I think his name is. Mm -hmm. I heard once on television, and he said, "Being black in America is exhausting." I, I think when you when you think about it, that that's still sort of true. I also wanted to ask you about a piece that you have in the back of this new book, The Lead, about being in Santa Fe for a conference not too long, long ago when you bumped into a woman named Ruby Bridges. Her name sounded familiar to you, Calvin. Who is she? Well, uh, she's, she's somebody who, who now speaks a lot on civil rights. But when she was a first grader, she was one of the people going into the grade schools. I think she, uh, she was going into William France School, which means she was the only black student uh, being escorted by U.S. Marshals. And I was standing outside of the school with a notebook as these women screamed obscenities at her. So um, I told her it was nice to see her all grown up. It was 50 years since, uh, since I had stood stood in front of those schools. Wow. You talk and hear about the line between your job as a reporter and covering all those brave civil rights workers who risk so much to de desegregate the South. And you conclude that the line maybe wasn't all that bright. And I just wondered as I read that, how could there be any line at all? Or was there really any line at all as far as you were concerned? I think it was important to be to be fair and to be scrupulous in your reporting, because uh, that told the story that that uh, one side wanted to tell and, and the other side was sort of ashamed of. So I always said it's, it's not like covering the Michigan-Ohio State game. You can't say that there's a moral equivalency between the people who think that everybody in America is qualified to vote Right. And the people who think that people who think that way should have their houses burned down. Right. But uh, by being as fair and, and as scrupulous as you can be, I think it tells the story without so what would be called taking sides. We'll be right back. Calvin Trillin's latest book is The Lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. Kansas City's own David Von Draley will interview Calvin at 7 Wednesday evening at Unity Temple on the Plaza for a Rainy Day Books event. More information, just go to rainydaybooks.com. I want to go back and ask you about some of the pieces in the lead. You have a poem in here about an editor asking you to cover Al Gore and whether he was going to run for the White House again. 
presumably, I think, in 2008, but the request was pretty unconventional. The editor asked you to watch the vice president's waistline. I'm wondering, did that really happen? Well, I'm not sure if it was a specific uh, <laughs> request, but in general, yes, people people said, uh, or at least I had heard that that uh, editors were saying, you can tell whether he's going to run by of whether he, uh, what my mother would call, lets himself go. I, I actually now I can't remember how how that poem came out. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but you're you're you were assigned to watch that waistline, and that's what the whole thing focuses on. I think I think in the poem, the the reporter thinks that instead of uh, majoring in journalism, he should have majored what used to be called home economics. And, and you point out there was a big uproar when. Al Gore at one restaurant reportedly turned down an order of fries, and for a moment you thought that was significant. Yes. <laughs> well, well, fortunately, I, I didn't actually have to cover that. But uh, a lot of times these, well, we're now, we're now on uh, Biden's age rather than, and to a little small degree, on, uh, on Trump's waistline right. uh, as opposed to Gore's. Well, speaking of French fries, how often do you get back here to Kansas City and to, to taste some of the fries and barbecue around town? Well, maybe once every year or two I, I get back. I have family here, so it's I don't usually I'm usually stopping on some place from one place to another, so I, I don't get a chance to get around to the barbecue joints. You once famously wrote uh, that Arthur Bryant's was the best damn restaurant in the world. What grabbed you about that establishment as firmly as it did? The food. It just tasted better. Um, <laughs> and uh, when, when I, I realized later that when we started going there, when I was, uh, say, in high school, that it was, as far as I knew, the only integrated restaurant in Kansas City. Nobody, I think, uh, white people couldn't stay away. I know you're also pretty fond of Joe's Barbecue, which isn't too far from my house. Yeah, I think that was originally called Oklahoma Joe's, right. I think. And I, I think I was among the many people who wondered, what does Oklahoma have to do with it? <laughs> so I, they, changed, they changed their name. Uh-huh. Do you think there's still something unique about Kansas City Barbecue? I mean, if you took a blindfold test, Calvin, would you be able to recognize it? Oh, I think so. Oh, I mean, also barbecue is is different in different parts of the country. Texas barbecue, for instance, is grew out of uh, of Czech and German butcher shops, and Carolina barbecue is really chopped. So, yeah, it's it's uh, there are a lot of differences, and I think I don't I don't know. I haven't done this in many years. I hope I could tell the difference. You know, you've rubbed elbows with so many interesting people over the years. Can I ask you about some of them? Sure. How about the great New Yorker writer Joseph Mitchell, who had, you know, at least in the writing business, had that legendary writer's block for so many years? Well, he was uh, somewhere between a model and a hero for me. He was a sort of a, he was a courtly gentleman. The thing that I particularly admired is somehow he seemed to get the marks of writing off of what he turned in that uh, disappeared on the page. I, I, I don't know if it was writer's block or he was just trying to get it right, which took him a long time. 
but he wrote about that that old bar in New York City and and uh, with the sawdust McSorley's, on the floor. Yeah, sor- yeah. That was McSorley's, yes. Yeah, McSorley's. Run by a couple of Irish, I think they were brothers, and they would say to an obstreperous customer, "Be good or be gone." And they were. <laughs> I think it's still there. I think it is too. And he, he wrote about the fi- the fish market down on the wharves there. Yes. I don't think that's there anymore. But uh, boy, he he could paint a picture, couldn't he? Yeah, the fish market's gone. I think to the Bronx. Yeah. How about E. B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web and so many other great books? I I knew Mitchell fairly well, but but I I think I may have met White once, but I didn't really know him. I was interested that. Uh, uh, when he was on his deathbed, people were reading to him. He, although he was a modest man, he only wanted to hear his own stuff. Really? And I thought that was why. Uh, if you have a limited time, why waste it on strangers? Huh. How about Johnny Carson? He used to have you on his show with uh, some regularity. Well, um, I, I always thought that, I, that it was so easy to have a conversation with him because He's, he was from Nebraska. There, there was some sort of Midwestern element to the speed, to, to the way either one of us talked that um, I think made it easier to talk to, to each other. He was a very um, adroit questioner. He, um, he almost never, never uh, asked anything that, that wasn't uh, faintly interrogatory in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, also, he could catch things. So at one point, I um, I was talking about the Reagan administration and whether the Reagan administration had been sort of subsumed by plastic surgery in the way that the previous administration had been overwhelmed by Vietnam. Huh. Uh, and I said that that even uh, Vice President uh, George H.W. Bush in his uh, annual checkup and Walter Reed was said to have said to one of the doctors, could you make me look a little less preppy around the eyes? <laughs> and he was, he was very good at the small things and, and at the large things. Huh. How did you prepare for going on that show? Well, um, they had, they had something called a pre-interview where you t- just talked to, talked about, um, what you might talk about really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Johnny didn't didn't seem to use that that much, but I think sometimes uh, the guest hosts were more likely to use it. But it, it gave them something to fall back on if if the conversation usually ended. And Johnny Carson was, I think, the reason he lasted so long. One of the reasons was he uh, he kept kept himself sort of detached from the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the of the taping, he would shake hands with everybody and wish them well and then disappear. And then in his office, one of the producers would debrief him so he could say, well, I didn't like this or that, that we want to have him back again, something like that. And uh, I think that that kept him from just being eaten up by uh, if, if he had said to at that point to every guest, oh, let's go have a drink or dinner mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. So, uh, and some some people criticize him that. I th- I thought it was a uh, a midwestern thing to do. It made sense that uh, you know, and and he lasted what thirty years something right. like that. Right. Right. 
Did you enjoy being on national TV or, or was it just stressful? No, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I, I think uh, uh, some people just have the gene that, you know, some people in, in surveys say that they, they fear speak, speaking in public more than they fear death. But in some people, I think it just comes naturally. So uh, I'm, I'm afraid of other things, but I'm not, that doesn't happen to be one of them. Yeah, yeah, huh. Well, your old hometown here has changed a lot, changed a lot in recent decades. What, what do you make of it today? It's not the cow town it used to be. Well, they spe- specifically turned their back on being a cow town That's some right. years ago. Although it seemed to me that somebody, one of the columnists in the Star still used the phrase, uh, something about the cow town. Right. Well, it's hard for me to tell because, as I say, when I come home, I, so I have a sister here and nephews and some old high school friends. So uh, I, don't, uh, I don't find myself uh, going around as if I were reporting. I, I always tell people that uh, Kansas City is uh, what the real estate people would call equally convenient to either coast. Uh, I still think of it that way. You know, when I first moved here in the mid-80s and the wind was blowing you know, out of the north, you know, the, the smells of that, those stockyards would come up, come up over the bluffs and down to where I lived. And it was uh, unmistakable what I was smelling. The stockyards, uh, I'm amazed that the smell is finally gone. That, that was pretty, particularly over that viaduct between yeah. Missouri and Kansas downtown. Yeah. That was, you want to avoid that. Well, these uh, pieces in the lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press, did you pick them out? What way did you uh, use to, to pick out what you picked out for this book? Well, I use, I think, most of the things I've written about the press one way or another, mm-hmm. although it varies a lot. I mean, there's, there's some stories about the New York Times, and there, there's a, a story about Beautiful Spot, a magazine of parking. Uh, I was the what would we say, co-editor. Some people say it was a one-issue publication. We'd like to say the second issue hasn't come out yet. <laughs> and we're still waiting. Production difficulties. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Calvin Trillin's latest book is The Lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. Uh, he'll be speaking at Unity Temple on the plaza 7 o'clock Wednesday evening for a Rainy Day Books event. More information, rainydaybooks.com. Calvin Trillin, always a pleasure. Appreciate your time so much today, and best of luck with the book. Are, are you still writing? What are you working on these days? Well, I was working on the book, so I have to find out. I have to discover something else to write about when I get home. There you go. Thanks again for your time, Calvin. Thank you. You bet. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancart, and Hallie Jackson. Our interns are Lauren Texter and Gabby Martinez. Paul Nakatura works our board. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening.